Again, good morning. My name is Mark. If I haven't met you, uh, well, hi. Um, you guys are aware that there's an 11 o'clock Bronco, Bronco game, is that right? Some people are like, oh, let's just close in prayer. I was like that when I saw that. I was like, oh. Uh, nevertheless, it is a joy and privilege to join you in the worship of God and uh, to be addressed by God through his word. We're working our way through the gospel of John. We're in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12 this morning, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do. And this is one of those, I mean, we want that every week, but uh, we want you to have put eyes on the text uh, every week so you can test what you hear in light of Scripture, as that is the final authority. Uh, but this week, because, well, well, quite frankly, there's going to be some hard things in the passage. And as we've gone through John, one of the things we've said as a church, we want to be a church that exists for the glory of God and the joy of all people. And so that means we want to be radically God-centered in our worship and in our lives. That just means we lift our eyes off of ourselves and, and our circumstances and our problems just for a moment and look to the glory of who God is. And, and one of the ways we pursue being God-centered is through expositional, exegetical, chapter-by-chapter -chapter preaching. And what that does is God sets the tone, God sets the agenda for what we're going to hear together as a church. And there'll be times when we do a series on topics and stuff like that, but by and large, we are working our way through books of the Bible just because we believe that's the best way to hear what God wants to tell us. Because frankly, I would pass this passage. I would skip over things. I would say, well, they won't like it. Uh, Matthew and I got together this week and we looked at it and we said, well, you know, we're getting a little bit crowded at Redemption Parker, but that's okay because next week we'll be empty. It'll be awesome. And, and there's just ways that God clears out the church and, and cleans it up a little bit through his word when we go this way. Uh, there, there are things in scripture that are hard to understand. And so uh, we would do well if we want to love God with our minds to, to dig in and not just say, well, I don't understand that. Then there are things in Scripture and in John's Gospel that are, that are not necessarily hard to understand, but hard to receive. Hard to, uh, they're more uh, not a head issue, but a heart issue. And so, for example, last week when Matthew preached on Mary anointing Jesus in this extravagant worship, costly worship, I think most of us that are followers of Christ in our mind can say, yes, Jesus is worth everything. And then in our hearts we could say, but I, I really, I don't want to give a year of my salary to Jesus. I mean, that's hard for our hearts. And then there's a third category that are hard to understand and then hard to receive. And that's what we have today. So welcome. Thank you very much for that. Uh, but as we go through this, and we've been laid out this series for 37 weeks, and we kind of assigned passages, and I'll admit I have pulled the seniority card a few times, and I said, man, that's a hard passage. Matthew, you want to preach some more? Go for it. And he's done an amazing job in those passages, and I've been blessed. And somehow, this passage fell through the cracks and fell to me, and so I was just like, oh, okay, well, here we go. And, and I've been wrestling with this text, and I rewrote this sermon like four times. Uh, and I'm going to do my best, Lord willing, to, to open it up. See, there's a temptation for all of us, especially in the time we live, but I, I think it's, it's a timeless temptation. And the temptation is to uh, conceive of Jesus and make Jesus maybe just a little bit better version of ourselves. 
Like maybe a little bit moral, but, but by and large, we want a Jesus that affirms our choices, affirms our lifestyles, votes like we vote, uh, would, would, would never uh, kind of confront us. If we can have that Jesus and just be comfortable with that Jesus, we would by and large be happy. And, and, and if, we, if we don't, we take this Jesus to the world, uh, we, we like to kind of reshape him and reform him, make him a little bit more palatable, make it a little bit more seeker sensitive. There's just this temptation in us to do that. But I, I would propose that, well, one, if you do that, you're worshiping a figment of your imagination, which has no power to save or rescue or presence in your life. And two, if you, if you have a God that never confronts you and never disagrees with you, then you probably just have a God made in your own image. And so Jesus is going to come and, and confront us, but he's going to confront us and he's going to say hard things. He's going to say sad things, but, but ultimately the hard things and the sad things are not to, to, to push us away or to make us sad, but ultimately to turn us to be glad in him. So I think if we do some work in our heads and our hearts, rather if the spirit does some work in our heads and our hearts today, our, our worship will be driven deeper. So if you have your Bible, I'll pray for us, and then I'll begin to walk us through. Uh, there's going to be three things that are hard to understand and hard to receive, but if we, are, uh, if we are faithful and God is faithful to us, then our worship will go deeper. John chapter 12, let me again just pray as we go before his word. Father, we, Lord, I, I know right now I need you. I need you to come and illumine my mind, even now, and fill my mouth with your words. Lord, we need to see the real Jesus. We need to encounter uh, the real Jesus. Lord, not someone we want you to be, but who you are, because that's what we need most of all. So I pray that the, the meditations of our minds would be spirit-filled, and the, the affections of our hearts would be stirred by the gospel once again. And then in the end of today, that we would see and savor you more as a result. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 12, uh, most of our stuff will be, the, the hard things will come later in the chapter, but I, I want to set up the context earlier in the chapter, starting in verse 12. It says, now the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so here's the scene. This is Jesus's last days on earth. He's, he knows it. He's walking into his last week on the planet, and it is Passover. And the first century historian Josephus says there was probably about 2.5 to 2.7 million people in a relatively small city at this time. They had come to worship God. They had come from all over Israel, and, and we'll see even in this passage, they come from all over the world to observe this thing. It would have been electric. It would have been wall to wall, street corner to street corner, people and energy. And this is Selection Sunday. What that means is they, they, they have come into the city to worship and, and observe Passover. And on Selection Sunday, the first day of the week, they're all looking for the perfect spotless lamb that they can purchase and then offer up as a sacrifice to God later in the week. And so they're searching for the lamb uh, to sacrifice because they're looking back for many years before this to a time when the God's people were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. 
And God, in his miraculous power, rescues and redeems his people. And before he does that, he says, I'm going to send a destroying angel in Egypt. And so I want you to take a perfect, spotless, blemishless lamb, sacrifice it, take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost of the home, so that when the destroying angel comes, he'll pass over your house because you're covered in the blood of the lamb. And so Selection Sunday, they're looking for their lamb. They're trying to find just the right lamb. And, and there's an energy in, in, in the room. There's an energy in the city. And this makes the Roman government very nervous. They, they've been quite generous to the Jewish people to allow them to continue in their worship. But, but when two million people come in the city, uh, even though Rome ruled the Roman Empire with an iron fist, uh, if it, uh, an uprising of that size ha- happened in this moment, all the Romans in that vicinity be, would be murdered. Oh, Rome would eventually roll in and destroy them, but in this moment they are nervous There's this nationalistic zeal rising up amongst the the Jewish people. And so the Romans are putting pressure on the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Hey, control the crowd. We'll let you do this, but don't let anything get out of hand. And Jesus threatens all of it. He's already come and, and threatened the authority of the leaders. He's overturned tables. He's confronted them. He's claimed to be God. And he is a threat. They've had, there is wanted signs for Jesus on the street corners. They're looking out for him. There's a massive plot to find him, arrest him, and murder him. And he knows it. So this is the atmosphere. And, and it says that uh, as this massive crowd has come in and there's energy and, and there's expectation, there's talk, they said they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so here, here's what they might have heard. It, it went viral without Twitter. They, they're just talking. They're saying, hey, that, that rabbi, that we, we've heard he's done some things. Like he was at a wedding and they ran out of wine and he turned water into wine. Well, that'd be pretty cool. Let's go see that. Well, I heard that he, he healed a sick person from like 20 miles away. Well, I heard there was someone that was blind that could now see. And then someone comes in and says, no, forget all that. Just a few days ago, there was someone who was dead, like for four days in the tomb, rotting, stinking flesh, dead. He brought him back to life. And they're like, are you serious? Well, let's go see. And so it's like a ticker tape parade. It's like a, a championship parade. And, and, and Matthew says, man, you, you in Colorado don't know about that. I'm like, we want Super Bowl 50. We know about that. He's like, oh, that long ago? Okay, Alabama. Um, I guess college football is the thing. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, we understand like the energy and, and the ticker tape and, and want to see uh, what the buzz is all about. And so the crowd begins to move towards this one side of the city and and you can hear it in the city and they hear the murmurs and the rumors and the noise and they're going out to see Jesus. It says verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. What's going on there? This is a nationalistic patriotic movement. This is what's going on. They take palm tree branches. In the intertestamental period, the palm tree became the national symbol for the uh, Jewish people. In a few decades, when they revolt against Rome and for a time uh, have their own currency, they print palm branches on their coins. 
This is like, we are back, y'all. We're back, and, and, and this guy's going to be our guy. And they're waving palm branches and say, Hosanna. That means save us now. Right now, deliver us. You are a conquering king. We can't wait to be uh, delivered from our oppression of the Romans. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. You can't claim anyone's a king. Caesar's the king, and that's dangerous to do. But they're singing it. They're shouting it. And, and, and no doubt the Romans hear this. No doubt the Jewish authorities hear this uh, in this city, this uproar part of the city going. And they're like, what is going on there? Which makes the next verse so shocking. Verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. So, don't think donkey like North American donkey, like a burro. Like, like a, a full-size, full-grown donkey at that time, in that place, like I would have to like step over and just walk with it. Just like we're going this way, like I'm walking my donkey between my legs. That's a full-grown donkey. But that's not even what Jesus finds. He, he finds a baby donkey. <laughs> like this poor creature. Like... He, he sits on him. He's got to lift his legs so he doesn't drag his feet. And the donkey's like, what is going on? And it's just this this, this disjunction of the crowd shouting for a, a conquering king to come and this guy on this poor animal walking through the streets. And it doesn't, it doesn't, mat, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. But it's fulfilling a prophecy, as John writes, just as it is written, Fear not. Why? Why why fear not? Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. He's sitting on a donkey's colt, a baby donkey. Fear not. Why? They they wanted a conquering king. They, They wanted someone to finally deliver them from oppression. They wanted Aragorn on a white horse with a sword in his hand to come down and strike down all his enemies. And if you ask the crowd, who are the enemies of God? They would all point to the Roman centurions. Those guys, take them out. But the Bible says there's something different going on here. The Bible says that apart from his sovereign grace and mercy and rescue and redemption, uh, we are all the enemies of God. We have all rebelled and, and, and against His majesty and His authority, His holiness, and, and we are the enemies of God. And so if He came with a sword in His hand, we'd all be doomed in that moment. And so the prophet says, fear not. He's not coming as a conquering king. He's coming as a peaceable king. He doesn't come with a sword in His hand. He'll come with a sword in His side. He doesn't come with a crown of gold. He'll come with a crown of thorns. And so this context is important to understand what the difficult things he'll say later. His humility, his purpose, his mission. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been, done, been written about him and had been done to him. So it's a, it's a confusing scene. The crowd is shouting these praises of nationalistic zeal, and this guy is riding a baby donkey into town. So that brings us to the first thing that is difficult to understand and difficult to receive, and it is this. 
that the cross of Christ glorifies God. That, that, that it glorifies and magnifies God. The cross magnifies the glory of both the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Look down at verse 23. And Jesus answered him, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John's Gospel, when he talks about the hour, he's talking about the time that he will be arrested, beaten, brutalized, murdered, tortured on a cross. And he says, The hour has come. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Bears much fruit. He is glorified in his death. This is confusing to the people. This is a stumbling block to people. This doesn't make sense. We already saw even the disciples, when Jesus would come and say, for three years, teach them, hey, the Son of Man is going to be uh, betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. We, we saw Peter say, uh, no, you're not. And, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. They just couldn't conceive that the thing that would bring glory to God is Romans church, torture instrument of the cross. But it does bring glory to God. Philippians 2, Paul puts it this way. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Unthinkable. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cross magnifies God. Verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but it is for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. How does the cross magnify the majesty, the beauty, the glory of God? It, it does that both for the Father and for the Son in different ways. For the Father, it, it shows that God is holy, He is just, He is righteous, and His judgments are true. And He will pour out His justified wrath against sinful, rebellious humanity on His Son. And in it we see, you are holy, you are right, and you are true. And in the Son, He is glorified because He is merciful, He is gracious, He is a suffering servant, and He bears the weight of wrath that you and I deserve. Jesus could have come on the white horse, and that would have been fine in the kingdom spectrum. But God said, what will maximize my glory? You will take it, Jesus. You will be glorified. This is hard for us to conceive. It was hard uh, for everyone to conceive. If, if, you've, if the cross is beautiful to you, oh, that'll be coming in the next point, but that was because God gave that to you, not because in and of itself we would be like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, God became a man and, and they tortured him and murdered him. And that's, that brings ultimate glory to God. That, that makes sense to me. No one ever said that. No one ever felt that. In fact, just the opposite. In Galatians 3, 13, uh, Paul puts it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So they had no category for this. You mean by, by being cursed, by God being cursed, it would glorify God? That doesn't make sense to us. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians church, who again had this temptation to try to kind of uh, water down the gospel, this temptation to make it more palatable. He said, no, no, no. Don't make it more palatable. If you do, it'll lose its power. So 1 Corinthians 1, 23 says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we should respond to this deep, hard truth in two ways. One, let's be faithful. Let's be faithful when we talk to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, when we open this word and we share about Christ. Let's not, let's not try to hide the cross and the, the power and the beauty of the cross. Let, let's not try to make the gospel cool. Like, Let's just admit, the gospel is not cool, but it is the power of God for salvation. And so we preach Christ crucified because it magnifies God. It, it, it doesn't naturally make sense, but that's what we do. So that's the first thing. Let's be faithful. Secondly, let's be patient. Let's be patient. This is foolishness to the world. So when we're sharing with our spouse or, or our loved one or friends that don't believe, and they're like, that sounds ridiculous, we can agree with them. We agree with you. It's foolishness. And yet, it magnifies the glory of Christ. And it is your only hope. So please, come to Him. Which leads us to the second difficult truth in this passage. The second difficult truth, if the first one is that the cross magnifies the glory of God, the second one is that God is sovereign and man is responsible. That God is sovereign over everything and you are responsible for every decision, choice, and belief you have. And they are not in conflict. This is hard for us to understand. Well, let's look at the passage here. Uh, verse 36. He says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is Jesus' last words publicly on planet Earth. He's going to go into the upper room with his disciples in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and he's just going to prepare them to go out. But these are the public words, and it is even in his last breaths, he is, he is calling the crowd to believe. It's a genuine call. He, he is pleading with them. You're in darkness. You need the light. Believe in the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. John tells us that in John chapter 20 that these signs are recorded so that you might believe. The whole purpose of the signs were to point to Jesus. The whole purpose of water into wine and the, the blind man seeing and the, the dead man coming back to life. The whole purpose is for us to look at that and follow the sign and say, I believe in you, Jesus. And here, one of the saddest verses in all the Bible says, they, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So it leaves a question hanging in the air. Well, well did he fail? Did he fail in his mission? Like, did he think that 
that everyone would believe, and, and yet now the vast, vast majority said, no, we, we don't believe. And so John, empowered by the Holy Spirit, goes to Isaiah. He goes to a passage that Mark will go to. He goes to a passage that Luke in the book of Acts will go to. He goes to a passage that Paul will go to in the book of Romans to explain the unbelief of the chosen people of God, the Israelites. He says, well, there's an explanation to this. Verse 38, so that, so it's a purpose clause, the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So they didn't believe so that Isaiah's prophecy would be filled. Well, what's the prophecy? Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's Isaiah 53, verse 1. If you read the rest of the chapter, it's this picture of the suffering servant. He had no majesty that would draw us to him. He would be pierced for our transgressions. And Isaiah says, but the vast majority won't believe. They don't want that kind of savior. They want a conquering king. Verse 39, just to, just to put more on it. Therefore, they could not believe. Say, so, well, God is sovereign over who's going to believe, and man is responsible. So which is it? Did, did God block them, or, or did they choose that? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. In fact, if you drop down to verse 43, it says, it gives a reason for their choice. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, this is a truth that is found throughout the Bible. Verse 40 says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. So what's going on there? Again, this is a truth throughout the Bible. In Exodus 7, 8, and 9, when Moses comes to uh, Pharaoh and says, let my people go, uh, there's verses that say, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then like two verses later, it'll say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, and what he's saying is God is, is sovereign over all, and yet we are responsible. The call to believe is a genuine call. In, in later on in the Old Testament, when, when God's people rebel and they go after idols, God says, I'm going to raise up the Assyrians to bring judgment on you. They're going to come and conquer you. And then like one chapter later, he says, and then I'm going to judge the Assyrians for doing that. Why? Because it was in the Assyrians' heart to do that. God just permitted that, and in his sovereign will, everything happens according to the purpose of his plan. And yet... We all make choices. None of your choices are coerced. So we say, how can we do that? How can we understand these things? How, 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 am I responsible or not? And we, we like to have a zero-sum game. We like to say, God, 100%, and we're just robots. That's not what the Bible teaches. We like to say, okay, 80-20. That's not what the Bible teaches. 50-50. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's totally God's sovereign purpose is that there is not a maverick molecule in the universe, and yet at the same time, you are a free agent. <laughs> you will make your own choice, and it all fits under the preview of God's purpose and plan. So some say, well, that sounds unloving. Well, only if you picture in your mind God with his arms crossed at the doorway to heaven and a mass of humanity trying to get in and God saying, no, 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 only you, only you, and only you. That is not the picture of the Bible. 
The picture of the Bible is that there is a mass of humanity and Jesus stands at the door of heaven with arms wide open and nail scars in his arms and the mass of humanity is not coming towards him. They're all running headlong towards hell. They want nothing to do in and of themselves with Jesus. And so they are choosing their path. They are free agents. They are gladly choosing that path. And in his mercy and grace, Jesus stirs the affections of some. (coughs) And their hearts are turned. And they turn and they see the glory and majesty of Jesus. And they say, I want that. And they make their choice to turn back to Jesus and embrace him. That's the picture of the Bible. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. So this should fill us with (coughs) what I would call peaceful initiative. Your life counts. The choices you make count. Well, can I mess up my life? Yes, but ultimately no. (laughs) You can really mess up your life. You can rebel against God. You can choose the path of sin. There will be consequences for that. And ultimately, if you are in Christ, He will work all things together for good. And so, we have peaceful initiative. Peaceful because we we know that God is sovereign, that wherever we go, He is in control. But we have initiative because our life matters, our choice matters, so so that when we uh, proclaim the gospel, when we preach, when we share, God ordains the ends as well as the means. And so, it's a real call to, to your friend and your neighbor, your spouse, when you say, trust Jesus. And in His mercy... There are those that he will turn their affections back to him, and they will see him, and they will come to him. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. In in the book of Romans, Paul put it this way. He said, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So one of the reasons why God allowed the Israelites to choose to to go away from Jesus is this mystery that says in the the chosen people of God turning their back on their Messiah, it flung open the doorway so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would come in and join the family of God. Paul says this is a mystery. A time is coming that their hearts will no longer be hardened and they will come back in. But for now, the doorway is open to every people on the planet. God is sovereign over salvation. We already saw this in John's gospel, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so God hardens people's hearts, but people harden their own hearts. Peter, in, in the book of Acts, he's preaching, and he, he said, Christ died on the cross. Um, how did he put it? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then later on in that sermon, he, he turns to the people, he says, but those of you who betrayed him and killed him are guilty of what you've done. So the Roman soldiers that, that, that nail him to the cross, they're guilty of that. And yet God is accomplishing his great purposes through all of that. So this should result in peaceful initiative. It should result in humility. Again, we should be the most humble people on the planet when you understand this truth. You didn't deserve grace from God. You deserved wrath. You weren't smart enough. You weren't moral enough. There was nothing in you that God said, I really wish I had him on my team. No. It is his sovereign grace that turned your heart to turn to him, which leads to the last thing that is hard to understand and hard to receive. Look down at verse 44. Jesus says, the one who rejects me 
and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus is saying that he came first as the humble, peaceable king on a donkey. So we could fear not and come to him. To see him on the cross as he is. Worship him and be rescued and redeemed by him. But a day is coming when he'll come back on a white horse. Revelation chapter 19 says this. And this is the hard truth. That Jesus will come and judge the world. His judgment will be right. It'll be good. It'll be beautiful. And again, in our, in our world, we don't think of judgment in those terms. But if you think just a little bit deeper, we need right judgment. Like, we, even, even on our highest levels in our nation right now, we are confused with judgment in the Supreme Court. It's going to be imperfect on this side of eternity. We don't like to talk about it. We like to say, in our postmodern age, they don't judge. Did, did you see the story in New York, uh, Planet Fitness? Apparently they have on the wall, judgment-free zone. And this guy got arrested because he went in there and took off all his clothes and started doing yoga. And they arrested him. And the only thing he said was, I thought it was a judgment-free zone. Because, like, he, we, we like to pretend that, that at the end there, there, there'll be no judgment. But if you just think a little bit on that, like, we need right judgment. And Jesus will be the just judge. Every injustice that has ever been portrayed and displayed in the universe will, will meet its end perfectly in a day to come. Jesus put it this way or in the book of Revelation chapter 19. He says, Then I saw, John said this, now an old man, after he wrote his gospel, he gets this vision, and in the end he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, not a donkey, not a baby donkey, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are, are many diadems. No longer a crown of thorns, he's got the crown that he deserves. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He came the first time as a peaceable, humble king so that we could come into his family joyfully, willingly, and of our own accord. But he will come again on a horse, not with a spear in his side any longer, but with a sword out of his mouth, and he will judge the nations. This is a hard thing to receive, and yet it is a good thing. Every injustice will meet its end. Hitler will meet its end. But this is only a good thing if you first came, come to Jesus as the peaceable king. 
If you come to him as the peaceable king, then you say that is right and that is good. And thank you, Jesus, that all of the righteous wrath of God that I deserved was poured out on you on the cross. Praise you, Jesus. And you will bow your knee and enjoy. You will celebrate him. But then there will be others on that day who will say, no, I did it my way. And Jesus said, you will bow and you will be judged. And it will be right and it will be good in that moment. To that end, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, these are hard truths, that the cross magnifies your glory. Lord, that you are sovereign, and yet you call us and hold us accountable for our choices. And that a day is coming when judgment will be right and just and perfect. God, I pray for anyone here that uh, has heard from you from the first time today, Lord, that they would enjoy, embrace you as the king on the donkey, and that you would take their sin from them and give them your righteousness by grace through faith, the gift of God. Lord, I pray that we would live in light of these great and heavy truths this week. Lord, help us to have peaceful initiative, knowing that you are with us as we share these truths with the people that you bring across our path. Make much of Jesus in our lives, in our midst, in our hearts now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.